Indeed, Lord, your word is truth, and it is by your power that you do a mighty work to sanctify us, and we pray that you would show us that today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> well, this is our, our last, will be our last week in the Psalms for a while, as this, this week we're going to conclude book three of the Psalms, so I want to encourage you to invite, or invite you to open your Bibles to Psalm 89, and it's a rather long psalm, so... We won't stand. I want you to honor the reading of it, but I'll have you honor the reading of it by just paying attention as you stay seated, since it's so long. But again, from Psalm 89, <clears throat> excuse me, a mascal of Ethan the Ezraite. My glasses are broken. How about that? I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Selah. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exalt in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. Of old, you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with, with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. 
I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. Silah. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame, Selah. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is, for what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Selah. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, by which your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. This is God's word. That was so long, we should just say amen and be done, but, but we won't. We'll unpack it a little bit. It is a, it is a fascinating psalm. It's, it, as you see, there's, there's very clearly two tones of the psalm. There's a tone in the beginning, and then there's a very different tone in the end. And we'll talk about that. And as I was, as I was thinking about this psalm, there was a story uh, from my college days came to mind, a book specifically that I had read um, in college about a missionary. Maybe some of you are familiar with this missionary. A missionary by the name of, of Jim Elliott. Uh, the book I read was called Shadow of the Almighty, and maybe some of you have read that book as well. It's, uh, it, it tells the story of Jim, Elliott, Jim Elliott's preparation for his missionary adventure, but it tells the story from the perspective of his journal entries and the letters that he wrote to his wife. His wife is the one who put the book together, uh, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Elliott, from, his, from the letters that he had sent her in the entries that he had made in his journal. And it is a remarkable story, one that certainly would inspire you with a man who clearly loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, and mind, and is just so consumed with wanting to see the Word of God spread throughout the earth. And he has felt a genuine call laid upon his life to join together with four other men and prepare to go and take the gospel to a part of the world where it had never gone before. And they had identified a tribe in, uh, in the, uh, the nation of Ecuador, in the Ecuadorian jungles, that they were going to go and take the gospel to. And uh, um, in their time of preparation, he was the one who wrote this phrase, perhaps that you're familiar with, you know, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It kind of just captures the, the aspect of of this man's heart. And this was, he, he wrote all of these things in his 20s, his beginning at, 20, I think he wrote that when he was 22. Uh, uh, 
And as they made their preparations, you know, for dropping into this area that had not just not heard the gospel before, but had really not come into contact with modern man at all, a very isolated tribe. And so, to try and prime the waters or to prepare the people for their coming, they would fly a little plane in and drop things down that they felt would be used as gifts or appreciated by, uh, by the tribal members in hopes that you know, by the time they actually landed, they would be softened and ready and to be introduced as friends who give gifts. That was the idea. And, but all of this time of preparation of writing in these journals really reveals just the, the heart of this, this godly man and creating these expectations for you as the reader to see some amazing, wonderful ministry occur where these lives of these Ecuadorian uh, tribe is just turned upside down radically by the gospel. That's kind of the expectation that's created as you read this book. And uh, many of you, of course, know where the story goes on the day they finally came where they were supposed to make their first contact with the group. Uh, they went in, they flew in, and they never came out. And for many, many years, no one knew what happened to this group of men. And later it was discovered that they were speared to death on that very first moment of contact. And you think, wow, all of those great expectations that are created by all that time of preparation just go completely unmet. And you think, where is the, where is the, the impact? Where is the ministry? Where is, where is the investment of this man and his soul and his energy now? And you, it does make you think about what was going on in the, the minds and the hearts of his wife. And by the way, he had a 10-month-old daughter at the time that he left behind. And how does this affect them? Here's an expectation they have, you know, for their, their husband and father to make an impact with the gospel as his life has a call upon him to go serve as a missionary only to find that their expectations are completely shattered and they go unmet. I mean, I'm, uh, we face that in our own lives when expectations fall far short of, of, of where we are in life. We have these, this idea that we are Christian people. We are, we are the recipients of the favor of God. And we tend to interpret the comfortable life we've enjoyed in America as a result of the fact that that's because we're Christians and God has simply blessed us. And so when something happens that all of a sudden shatters that, like the loss of a job unexpectedly, or the loss of a big financial investment unexpectedly, a loss of a loved one, a loss of health, a loss of a child, we wonder what is going on. This doesn't fit the expectation of blessing that's supposed to be for God's people. And this psalm, I think, is really dealing with that. It's dealing with these great expectations that came as a result of the promises that God made to David. And that's what the first half of the psalm is really expounding. Those first 30, 38 verses, are, or, or 37 verses, are just going through the great and wonderful and amazing promises that happened in the Davidic covenant, only to come at the end with this reality that they seem to be completely unmet. Our, our, our reality is not matching up anything with the expectations that we have given the promises of God. And the psalmist is wrestling with that. And it's a very common thing that we wrestle with. What do we do? How do we face it? 
Well, let's walk through the psalm and see how the psalmist is dealing with it or how the psalms invite us to think about the unmet expectations in life when we are facing losses that we certainly didn't expect, especially as followers of Christ. And the first thing we need to look at is the grandness of these promises that God has set, because that's the God has given. That's what has set the expectations in the first place that the people of God had. So as we go through these, in the first, the first 38, seven verses really talk about that, and it's an elevation of the Lord. The first couple of verses really capture it. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. The steadfast love in the Lord and the, and the faithfulness of the Lord, that's what he's holding up. And where does he get that idea that God has steadfast love for his people and faithfulness for his people? Well, he's deriving that from the fact that he has made this promise in the time of King David. He's referring to that in verse 3. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. And this is what he said. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So that's the promise. That's the promise that has created expectations for the people of God to see that their life should be indeed going well. And, and this, this, these verses are perhaps the most beautiful place in the Bible we, found, we find this promise being expounded upon and really explained in poetic language. So as he goes through, first of all, talking about the greatness of the God who has made the promise. You know, wonderful are you, Lord, great are you, God, in the heavens, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. There's a sense in which he is saying, there is no one who compares like you. You have done such a great thing that all of the heavenly hosts are standing in awe of it, of this promise that you have made. It is that grandiose of a promise. That's what the psalmist is saying. And he, then he goes on to talk about how great God is. God, you are all powerful. You are the one who, who stills the the raging seas. You are, all, you, you are the creator of all things. All areas, all places, all aspects of the universe belong to you. And as he expounds on the greatness of God in terms of his, his power and might, then he goes on and, and begins to put those very things upon the anointed of God. This one that you have chosen, I'm going to give him a hand that also is able to quell the enemies and the raging of the sea around him. My power, in essence, is going to flow through to this anointed one. That's the expectation that's being created in the promise that God has made. So it's no wonder that the Israelites had great expectations of what would happen within their kingdom following this great promise. And if you go and you read the account of history, of ancient Israel's history, and you get to 1 Kings chapter 4, you read about what happened under Solomon. Solomon was, of course, David's son, immediate son, and the context of that promise, by the way, came when David had had this idea, this, this grand idea to say, I'm going to build the Lord a house. He's been, he's been, you know, his presence has been manifest in this tabernacle, which was given, in, which, which Moses was instructed to build, but a tabernacle's very design was to be a tent that can travel. And now that we're established in this permanent place in Jerusalem, I'm going to build God a house, a permanent structure, a temple. And of course, uh, God gives the prophet Nathan a vision, and Nathan comes to Nate, David to communicate that and says, look, you're not going to be the one to build and establish a house. In fact, 
the very opposite is going to happen. I'm going to establish your house, which is the promise we made. I will cause your son to sit on the throne forever. Your son will be the one to build me a house. And of course, King Solomon was the one who built the, the great temple that was in Jerusalem after David had died. In the first Kings chapter 4, as we read about that description, he's ta- it, the, the writer is describing the kingdom in this wonderful, majestic language. Here is a king who is wiser than everyone who has come before him. Here is a king who is richer than everyone who has come before him. And even as those who, who hear about his fame and his wealth and his wisdom from other nations come to visit him, They walk away saying, I heard how great you are, but now that I see it, it doesn't even compare with the reality. Blessed are all those who sit under your wisdom and receive your justice. They talk about the kingdom being such a place that was so wealthy that uh, the, the devaluing of gold and silver because it was so plentiful that they had so much. So there is this expectation, even the writers of the Bible hearing this promise give about the nation of Israel. So when suddenly they find themselves in a position where the kingdom's not doing so well, it doesn't seem to line up. And it causes real problems and real questions upon their faith. And you see the psalmist asking some of those questions in the psalm, which we're going to get to. What about your steadfast love, Lord? This doesn't seem to be lining up with what you said. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? I mean, we as followers of Christ, those who profess faith in Christ, we do walk around with kind of the set of expectations that life ought to be good. And we perhaps don't realize where some of those things are derived, and maybe we should check it. But ultimately, where those things are are derived are from promises like this. I will establish my people and their kingdom under my anointed king who will sit on the throne forever. There is this notion that he will rule with the very power that I give to him. And therefore, the kingdom of God, we we, we understand or we assume, will be blessed and prosperous. And therefore, as followers of Christ, somehow we're supposed to be blessed and prosperous. So we too find ourselves questioning what do we do? When Israel faced the situation that actually caused the writing of this psalm, as we turn to the next section, beginning at verse 38, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. We wonder, well, what, what time is the writer talking about historically within the nation of Israel? And a couple of different times have been suggested by the commentators, but there seems to be one that fits the context the best, and it's the, the time of the exile. Under one of the last kings of Judah, Jehoiakim, when he was was still young, Babylon came in and conquered Jerusalem and carried him away. So it fits a lot of the descriptions that we find about the uh, the, the, the throne being cast down, that he's plundered, the strongholds are in ruins, the walls have been breached, that In verse 45, you have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. So that is the reality they're facing, which is, you can see, there's a big gap between the expectation created from the promise and the reality in which they're experiencing. And so what do you do? When you think, well, what, what what are your options to do? I mean, if you were living in ancient Israel, you would have an option. 
You could simply go along with where you are now, especially if you are one of those that are carried off into exile, into Babylon. You're carried into a new culture, right, that worships a different set of gods, and they're putting those before you, essentially making the statement that our gods are superior to your gods because how do we know? Well, because we conquered you. Our gods must have been stronger than yours. And as long as you're willing to go along with our culture and with our gods, then you will receive great blessings. Even as the king came and says, I will put you on horses. I will do all these great things for you. You will enjoy your own grapevines and your own figs and things like that if you will just come with me. So that's one option. God is not working. My faith isn't working. Why don't I just go along with culture? It would be much easier and what the culture says we ought to bow down to and worship. And I can receive comforts. And by the way, you will receive comforts if you do those things. You will receive the affirmation of those people who approve of you simply filling in or filing along the same direction the rest of the world is going. That's one option. It's a valid option. It's a real option. And it's what I think a lot of people end up doing because they think, well, God has certainly failed. He has shown Himself incapable. You know, that was a big question in the life of Job. For those of you who've read the story of Job, you know, the big, it's, Job is, by the way, a fascinating account of a man who was the wealthiest of all, who just lost everything. And the reason that happened is, as the writer tells us, he, he shows us what's happening behind the scenes, that behind the scenes there is this meeting between, in the heavens between God and Satan, and Satan comes after wandering to and fro among the earth, and God saying, what do you think of my servant Job? He is faithful among all my people. And Satan challenges him and says, well, he only is faithful to you and loves you because you've blessed him so much. Take away those blessings and he will curse you with the accusation that people only love you, God, because you have given them so many gifts. You've made their life so comfortable. And so God says, you have my permission. And so within moments, it seems, as we read quickly, his wealth is swept away by marauders. His houses are destroyed by supernatural events, it would seem earthquakes and windstorms and other things. His children are all killed. And all this comes by, from one servant after another reporting back the losses, the losses, the losses, the losses. <clears throat> and finally, Job's health is taken away. And he finds himself sitting outside of the village where they dump all the pottery, all the trash, in the ashes, picking up some broken pieces of pottery, scraping his boils of his body to try to find some measure of relief because his health has just failed. And the big question is, will you still be faithful to a God who has not given you all the comforts that you expect that go along with someone who's a follower of God? That was the question. And even Job's friends who come and question him keep saying, Job, you must have you must have messed up. That's why this is happening. God is simply punishing you. And of course, we know, having seen the, the scene ahead, that's not what was happening at all. And yet, that's the assumption. His wife tells him to do the logical thing. She says, look, curse God and die already. 
find some relief. You know, God has abandoned you. Why do you stay with Him? And I think when we face these unmet expectations, that's ultimately the question. Is God faithful like He says He is? And if so, why are we possibly experiencing what we're experiencing? What are the questions that we find left here? The psalmist asking, beginning in verse 46, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? We can see what the psalmist's choice is, by the way. He hasn't abandoned God. He is questioning God. He doesn't abandon Him, but He does question. And I do think that's okay for us to do. Job even has questions of God. He says, I want my time before God to ask Him what's going on. How long, O Lord? Verse 48, what man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? 49, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Where is it? And the psalm ends there. I mean, he ends on a happy note, blessed be the Lord forever, but he doesn't ever answer the question. And if this is taking place in the exile, which seems to be the most logical place that fits these expectations, you think, here you have all these great expectations of the kingdom, and there you have the reality that they're not experiencing, and it's setting the stage for the next great act in the story of redemption. And what is the next great act in the story of redemption? It is the coming of Jesus. And if you read the Gospels and how they begin, Jesus is introduced in an interesting way. I think it's Matthew 1, 1, or Matthew 1, he talks about him, he calls him, he is the son of David. When he's welcomed into Jerusalem in that final week, they call it the triumphal, week, the triumphal entry. They have people putting, you know, putting palm leaves and stuff down on the ground for him to walk on the donkey into, and they're shouting, Hosanna to the Lord in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they talk about him coming as the son of David. And by the way, they call him the Christ, not because that's his name, but because the the word the Christ means the one who is anointed, which is a reference to, as you even saw it here in this psalm, the anointing of David as king. The kings, when they became king, were anointed with oil. It was meant to be a picture of God pouring His Holy Spirit upon the king, endowing him with these very powers that he talks about in this psalm. You are the one who's going to exhibit my power of controlling the oppressor, the enemy, the chaos in the world. And of course, Jesus doesn't reject this. In fact, when He announces His ministry, He says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Clearly, the implication that this this king that was talked about in this promise that was given to David, who's going to sit on God's throne forever, well, he's here now. He's here. God's promises haven't failed. They just didn't look like you thought they were going to look, which tells us a couple of things about our expectations. One, it it tells us that maybe our expectations aren't exactly right. 
to think that we should be living comfortable lives because we're followers of Christ. That's the first thing. Or maybe it says our expectations of comfort are even wrong. And that's the amazing thing. You think about we should, we should lower our expectations as people. That's actually not what the psalmist is doing. If you read the, if you read the first 37 verses of this psalm, it is not lowering expectations that come out of this promise. It is elevating them to such a lofty degree, you realize he's talking about, he's talking about the majesty of God and how in control he is, how viewed in awe he is by all of his holy ones and the assembly of the holy ones, how much power he exerts over the universe and all its chaotic forces, and how that very power he's giving to the king that he is called to sit on the throne to be forever to be the way in which He exhibits His steadfast love and faithfulness to His people forever. If He's not lowering their expectations, which by the way, if they were living in the kingdom under some measure of prosperity, some measure of peace from their enemies, thinking that they were, that they were experiencing the fulfillment of the promises of, of, that were given to David, they were wrong. They weren't. And even with, under King Solomon, at its very height, and it's presented to be a fulfillment, it was only a fulfillment in type. It was a foreshadowing of something greater. How do we know? Because in the very next couple of, of chapters, when he talks about Solomon, he talks about how Solomon wasn't quite as good as he was originally depicted to be in, these, in this chapter 4. Solomon went after many women. That wasn't what he was supposed to do. He went after horses and chariots from Egypt. He wasn't supposed to do those things. And when Rehoboam, his son, takes the throne, the very first thing we find is the people are coming to Rehoboam saying, Rehoboam, your father was hard on us give us some relief. And you realize, what? Solomon was hard on people? I thought he was this great king. Things weren't as rosy as 1 Kings chapter 4 make them out. And the writers are intentional about that. They're saying, look, this was a type of the wonder of the promises that were given to David, but they're not the reality. Your expectations are way too low if you think while you're living in a kingdom of peace, that you are seeing the reality of this promise unfold. C.S. Lewis says something interesting. You know, he, he talks about this in one of his books. He says, you know, we, we would rather have, as he calls it, mud pies in the slums rather than enjoy a holiday at the sea. You are far too easily pleased, he says. You know, if you want to live a comfortable life on this earth, thinking that in my faith, I can just live a comfortable life, and that's what I'm supposed to experience. You have set your bar far too low. Now, at the same time, <clears throat> when we face hardships and losses that we don't expect, what are we to make of them and those expectations? Well, the fear, of course, in the psalmist's own expression that, that this means that God has pulled His steadfast love away, that His wrath is upon them. Now, Jesus tell, the coming of Jesus communicates two things in this psalm. One, it communicates to us that there is to be a fulfillment to the, to the psalm, to the promise given to David that is going to match this language that we find in the psalm. And there are hints of this, of course, in the New Testament as they point us forward to the future when the new heavens and the new earth arrive, and what that's going to be like. That's going to be a place of great wealth and wonder, a place of healing, a place where God Himself dwells, wiping away every tear from every eye, where the, where the nations who are once enemies with each, other, with each other are now living in harmony as brothers. 
It is a place beyond our imagination is really what it is. We can't even fathom what is in store for those that God has called. And the coming of Jesus is pointing us to that future reality. But Jesus' coming also does, helps us see what is going on in the last half of the psalm, because what is going on in the last half of the psalm is the anointed one is, having, is being forsaken. His, his throne is being thrown down. He's being shamed before all the people. His enemies are gloating over him. And by the way, this is, this is exactly what was happening to Jesus Christ in that final week when he went on trial before Pilate, before the Jewish priests, and was sentenced to death on a cross. And even as he hung there, uttering the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist, by the way, in this is accusing God of being the one who's pouring out his wrath on the nation. And while that may have appeared to be happening, it wasn't happening. His wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ. And we know it was completely poured out because Jesus rose from the dead three days later. So we have two sets of expectations. One, our expectations of what life is meant to be like in the kingdom of God are way, way too low. And the battle that is raging in the meantime is far worse than bigger than we think it is. Making its ultimate expression on the cross of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, assures us that what we experience in the hardships and the losses and the unmet expectations aren't God's wrath poured out upon us, but rather something else, something else that we've already looked at many times in these Psalms. They're doing something that are preparing us to live within that perfected kingdom. Because by the way, in that perfected kingdom, who is there? God's people who have gone through the trials that have done the work to sanctify them and purify them and cleanse them. Which, by the way, as we looked at last week, when we were talking about how is a diamond formed, a diamond is formed by being exposed to lots and lots of high temperatures and lots and lots of pressure. And it's the only way to cause these carbon atoms to form into this beautiful crystal. So the unmet expectations and the losses that we, we face now are of great significance somehow in the plan that God is bringing about to sanctify you and prepare you for this kingdom that is without blemish. So, of course you're going to have unmet expectations in your life. What kind of losses that are going to come along your way? I mean, with a world that seems less and less certain of what's going to happen in the future, we shouldn't be surprised when we encounter trials of various kinds. I think there's an apostle who tells us something like that, maybe James chapter 1. You are going to experience those losses, losses that seem very unfair, that don't seem to line up with God's promises or God's goodness or God's sovereignty, that seem to be nothing but acts of evil. I mean, I think about the news we saw yesterday with the Hamas and Hezbollah bombing Israel. You know, these areas that we are walking around in, or close to them anyway, in March, missiles are flying over. 
You know, people in their homes are being taken and captive, and we just think all we can think as a world is how evil, as terrorist activity. And yes, it is acts of evil. But it's no different than Israel's rest of Israel's history when it was being attacked by enemies from all sides. And what do the prophets tell us about that? While, yes, they in one sense they were acts of evil kings, they were also acting as hammers in the hands of God, chiseling away to make a people that would one day be great and glorious and sanctified and worthy of living in this wonderful, amazing, healing kingdom that God has promised. So, what's the answer to unmet expectations? What was it for the psalmist? It was the gospel. It was the gospel, the announcement of the coming of Jesus Christ. He resolves the tension in the gap between expectations and reality. So, remember that the next time you face Him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful. We are grateful that you provide us answers when we find ourselves in what seems like a contradiction, when our reality doesn't match our expectations, expectations that we have as children of your kingdom. Lord, we are so grateful for the gospel. The coming of the true son of David who would sit on your throne forever, who would reign supreme until all of his enemies are a footstool under his feet, who is at work coming and bringing us a grace and sanctifying us through the difficulties and the trials that we face so that we will be one day made beautiful and glorious and fit for your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.